0: While you're getting settled, Davy Moore, why don't you come on up here? Come on, just run real quick. Davy Moore is now back in town. We're very proud of him. God bless you, Davy Moore. Make sure you come by and give him a hua. very proud of all our young people. Our young people's group is growing at 50, 60 people over just for apostrophe. So it's an amazing thing. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we are working our way through the New Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You always know where we're at. If you're new to the church That's our style. We go through the scriptures verse by verse. So we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 1. Trying to get out of the first 12 verses, there's a lot in there. And I think we're going to make it today. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts toward heaven to consider your God-breathed word, we pray, Father, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Father, to turn off our cell phones, <laughs> and to <laughs> turn on our attention to focus on you, Lord. And so we just uh, we're uh, we are grateful to know you, God. And now to sit under the teaching of your word, we just pray that your word would find its place in our hearts, and that we would understand by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, starting out here, I wanted to let you know that I've been reading a lot about the struggles of our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world lately, and um, this is from the Voice of the Martyrs website here. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs is very respected and reputable uh, Christian agency. And their mission, here, quoted here, is to raise awareness about the many thousands of Christians annually who are killed, persecuted, imprisoned, or harassed for their belief in Jesus Christ. They also provide practical assistance and relief to persecuted Christians throughout the world. And here are just three little blurbs um, from their website going on this year and recently in these months. India. On April 25th, Pastor Mohan and two other believers were severely beaten by 35 Hindu extremists for holding a VBS vacation Bible school near Bangalore City. According to the Voice of the Martyrs contacts in India, the three-day VBS was organized by a Baptist church. Around 60 children from different backgrounds were attending the VBS. As they were worshiping, about 35 people belonging to a Hindu extremist group Forcefully entered the hut, chanting slogans and demolished the hut. The extremists beat Mohan, Samuel, and others, alleging forceful conversion of the children. The perpetrators chased the children away and tore the Bibles. Mohan was severely injured. The believers are living in fear and did not lodge complaint with the police. Pray for healing of all those injured in the attack. Pray they forgive their attackers and for the children who are attending the VBS to continue to grow in their faith. The next blurb from the West Bank in Israel. Holy, Ma- Holy Land Missions, which recently opened a youth center in a Muslim-dominated neighborhood of the West Bank, reports that more than 25 local youth from a um, variety of religious backgrounds, have accepted Christ. West Bank Christians are praying that God will use the youth center to change Muslims' lives forever, but it's a real battle. Tires have been slashed. The center, center's workers have been threatened. The landscaping is uprooted. The place is vandalized. Would you please continue praying, the ministry leaders are saying, Quote, we are going to be doing much more at this center. We are not stopping. We will not falter from sharing the message of Christ. One more. Labor camps in China. After serving two years in Chinese labor camps, five leaders of the Lin Then House Church have been released. Although each person experienced physical and psychological torment, they all feel strong experiencing, quote... Glory in the midst of trials and tribulation, reports China Aid Association. The Christians were arrested in the aftermath of a September 13th attack on Linfen Church when over 400 local police, government officials, and hired rebels attacked one of the church sites. In the attack, they demolished the church building and clashed with many members of the church, sending 30 of them to the hospital. Five of the ten leaders detained were sentenced to prison terms up to seven years during a one day show trial, and the other five were sentenced to two years of reeducation through labor. Quote We sincerely urge all brothers and sisters around the world to pray for Linfen Church. At the same time we also ask brothers and sisters to remember in prayer the leaders who are still suffering in jail, the five told China aid. May the Lord move the police to release them early so that they can be reunited with their families. And we say a great big amen to that. This year, churches were burned down in eastern India. Churches were bombed in Iraq, Indonesia, Malaysia. Pastors were jailed in China, North Korea, and many of the Middle East countries. Sharia law was instituted in 10 states in Nigeria, causing Christians to flee severe persecution. Pakistan has a blasphemy blasphemy law, 295C, which carries the death penalty for blaspheming Muhammad and converting from Islam to Christianity. Militant Muslims are increasingly attacking churches and Christian organizations. All that to say, 1 Peter is written to Christians like these, who are living under great duress, intimidation, and grief. The Christians to whom Peter is writing this first epistle they are living in the mid to late 60s of the first century under the seething wrath of Emperor Nero, whose life mission was to purge Christianity completely out of the Roman Empire. And so to really understand First Peter, you really have to read with the context, understanding what it would be like to live in a place where Christianity is totally outlawed, where to open your mouth to speak and stand up for Christ could cost you not only your job, your reputation, your property, but your life. And these are the Christians to whom uh, First Peter is addressed. They, they are living in um, what is modern day. Turkey. All of the cities mentioned there in first chapter are, are now in modern-day Turkey, and they are undergoing a severe trial. Um, you know, the Puritan father, who wrote a wonderful commentary in the 1600s on First Peter, said Peter's got three things on his mind, of course, prompted by the Holy Spirit. Number one, faith to establish them in believing Two, obedience to direct them in doing. And three, most importantly, patience to comfort them in their suffering. And, you know, not only directed to first century suffering, but those in the 21st century who are suffering. I love this quote that says, whether we're losing our property or just our friendships, whether we're losing our lives or just our reputation whether we're being denied our freedom or just a job, whether it's a physical assault or a verbal one, all Christians from all walks of life know what it's like not to fit in and to take heat for standing up for absolute truth as it is found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, First Peter is as relevant to those suffering under Nero as those enduring in Nigeria today, and for those who suffer in more subtle ways in countries less hostile to the gospel like ours. So as we dive back into 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying, if Jesus Christ is worth living for, he is worth dying for as well. And so with that, we'll back up just for context for people who haven't been in the services uh, to to verse 3 and read to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though for for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. So that concludes the text for this morning's consideration. And right away, let's start with the importance of truth. You'll notice in Ephesians chapter 6 that Paul likens the spiritual armor that we are to use to protect ourselves as Christian, really a metaphor of physical armor. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness, and he talks about the helmet of salvation. He talks about the sword of the Spirit, but the whole thing is held together by the belt of truth. Without the belt of truth, you have no armor because the belt holds everything together. And so it's important to prepare Christians for the difficulty that was going to come upon them, the persecution, by knowing and living according to God's truth. The heavenly spiritual realities, which are truths, trump. All those physical realities. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but the unseen things are eternal. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. It's so important. Peter's just saying, hey, before we get started here, let's talk about the goodness of the salvation, the, the honor and the glory and the wonder of what it means to be saved, that these spiritual realities should direct our lives. You know, that Jesus said this, you'll know the truth and that truth will set you free. I mean, it, it, they can go through anything Nero can dish out if they know the truth about what a great salvation that they have. And so Peter is just going to layer by layer unpack this wonderful, glorious gospel that has come and taken hold of our hearts. It does truly set your heart free. I mean, think about even Jesus faced his crucifixion with joy. He talks about joy in his John 17 prayer. He talks about joy right before he's going to go to the cross. And before Pilate, what does he say there in John 19? Pilate says to him, Oh, why so quiet? Don't you realize I have the power to either crucify you or let you live? And Jesus said, On the contrary, You would not have any power at all unless heaven gave you that power, just so you know. (laughs) Jesus knows the truth because he is the truth, and that truth has set him free to be able to face not only Pilate, but the horrors of the cross and what wait for him with absolute confidence in God the Father and his plan and his will. Why? Because he knew the truth. Pilate said, hey, look at the outward situation. I've got the power. And he says, but I know the truth. And the truth is you wouldn't have any power if God the Father wasn't giving it to you. Therefore, I'm in his hands, not yours. So Peter here in 1 Peter is saying, let's talk about your salvation. Let's talk about what it really means to be saved so that when you face what Nero has for you, You will do so the way Jesus did, with confidence, with joy, despising the shame, but knowing that God was in control with great peace. So these opening 12 verses, profound and rich uh, truths that anchor and stabilize and empower us to be able to withstand any trouble that comes our way. Five things. We've touched on two of them. There He's talking about, hey, listen, number one, you're chosen by God. Number two, you have a living hope. Number three, you have an incorruptible inheritance. Number four, you have an inexpressible joy. Number five, you have an unbelievable honor. So, we're going to talk about those five things, the first two kind of briefly, because we've already been here and done this. But honestly, I can't resist because we've been chosen by God. How can I just not uh, briefly restate uh, that? And this is just such a, a wonderful thought to know the truth. Number one, he says, listen, you who are facing a lot of trouble, you're in the pressure cooker. You don't fit in here. You are, what's the word? Uh, Parapitamos in the Greek, "misfits in your own family, in your own society, in your own culture. You're a foreigner." He says, "You're a stranger in this world because of what God has done in you." He says, "You have been chosen by God there. You may be unpopular in this world, uh, but you popular in heaven. You may not get thumbs, you may get thumbs down from Nero. But God gives you two thumbs up. You may not fit in here, but there's a place for you in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says that he foreknew you. It means before the world was. That he had loving thoughts toward you and and was intimately acquainted with who you are before You were born. God foreknew you. Listen to this, and from Psalm 139, it kind of fleshes that thought out. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Just he was involved in knitting the tissues together in, in your mother's womb that would become who you are. And ordaining all of your days before you were even born, he said, I foreknew you. And it means to set his love upon you beforehand. It's just a wonderful thing. And it says that he he, he ordained your days before one of them came to be. He arranged that on one of those days, his spirit would draw you, convict you, and soften your heart, and that you would choose the son, and that he would become your Lord, and pay for you with his own blood to make you his own. That word to foreknow means, as says in the Greek, prognosis, where we get the word prognosis prognosis. Very. <laughs> uh, it just, you were afraid because it was like so obvious is not the answer. <laughs> so when you go to your doctor you say, what's the prognosis? You would know better than I. Tell me how this whole thing is going to go. So God says, I already knew you and here's my prognosis. You win. That's The whole idea there is that before this game even started, I rigged it in your favor beforehand for you to win. And I ekelektos you. I chose you. I selected you from a group. So the captain, just think back to P.E. days. All right. The captain comes out all eternity, all humanity. They're there. He says, there are going to be two teams. I'm the captain of the Lord's hosts, which he is called. He's the captain. He's choosing sides. And he looked at you and he said, I want you. Not only did he foresee that, but the word means he was doing something to make it happen. So when he saw you and lavished his love on you and had you in his mind and was ordaining your days, he chose you to be with him. And you responded. Somebody might say, you know what, I don't really like how that sounds. Paul said, you know what, in Romans chapter 9, you don't have any right to talk back to God. And if you have a problem the way he does business, you will have to take that up with him. Romans Chapter 9, read it there, verse 20 and verse 21. So he says, okay, so number one, check it out. God Almighty chose you, predestined you to win. Number two, he said you have this living hope. Now, the word hope, in the world, In the secular world, hope means a desire or a wish. I hope things go well, you know. It's kind of, uh, just kind of cross your fingers and as the world does, knock on wood or whatever it is. But that's the wrong understanding of Christian hope. Christian hope comes from the definition of what salvation is. Salvation is a new birth. The Holy Spirit comes into you. You don't get to be, you don't have hope because you have a philosophy or a religion or a principle or a positive attitude. That's not your hope. A living hope that he says, your hope is alive because Christ is in you. He is your hope. He is alive through the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, you have a living assurance with you, God, Emmanuel, God with us. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins, but his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so that's why we go confidently into difficulties. He says when you face Nero and they want to throw somebody you know, into the lion's den there, which they did, or light Nero's gardens with one of us, which they did. He says, you have a living hope because you go in not with a principle or a religious idea or or some kind of positive attitude about what's happening. You go in with the living presence of the living God who has taken up residence in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, if anybody love me, My father and I will come and dwell with him and make our home with him or her. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, don't you realize you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? My friend, being saved doesn't mean, oh, we've turned over a new leaf and we're going to start being good. <laughs> it means you, the old person, died. You had a spiritual encounter with the living God and he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has come in and raised you from the dead and put something in there that was never in there before. A living, breathing presence of the Holy Spirit united with your spirit. And now you have a living whole. I hope it all works out. Well, come on, you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Of course it's going to work out. That's why it's a living hope. And you may have to go through some hard difficulties, but you know how it's all going to end. Is that how Daniel's buddies, Meshach, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, fared over in Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to build this 90-foot by nine gold statue of moi (laughs) that we're going to play through the loudspeakers of Iraq, which is Babylon, is modern day Iraq. We're going to just broadcast this beautiful music. And when you boys hear the music, you will bow. And those boys didn't bow. They got hauled in. And you know the story. I like to bring it up a lot because it's one of my favorite stories. (laughs) And so there they are be- before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, look, uh, I hear that when we play the music, you don't bow. You're like the only three who don't. And you know what, folks? You're going to bow right here because I'm going to give you all a second chance. We're going to play the music, and I'm going to watch you. I- I'm quoting for Daniel 3. <laughs> We're going to play the music, you're going to dance, and you're going to bow. Or you know what? Heat the furnace up seven times hotter. Because if you don't bow, you're going in there. So here's what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But know this, even if he does not, we really want you to know, O king, We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They toss them in. You know the story. Then the king looks in and says, Look, I see four guys walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of God. Yeah, because it was. (laughs) Why did they have such chutzpah? Why did they have such nerve and confidence what what did they have hope why because they just so we're just quoting scriptures right now or a principle nothing wrong with <laughs> nothing wrong with quoting scriptures but they had a, something a little bit more than that they didn't have an axiom they didn't have a precept they didn't have a principle they didn't have an attitude they had a person they had a person and he showed up There he is, their living hope. Burned up or no? It didn't matter. He said, it doesn't matter. We die, we die, we're with him. We live, we live with him. Because we have a living hope. Two years ago, last Sunday, one of us who had a living hope perished in a fiery crash Sebastopol. Drunken driver head-on. Kathy O'Daniel. But she had more than her seatbelt on. She had a living hope. And her husband in the ER where the daughter was getting attention, Kathy had already gone. He smiled at me and said, "She's there." She's there, living hope. She didn't die with, oh, no, I hope everything, i got a good attitude. She died with a person in her heart, enmeshed with her spirit. You can't kill that in a car crash. You can't burn it out by dumping it into some hole with fire. You can't extinguish that flame because it's the flame of God. That's in you, he says. So before Nero starts with his dictates and demands, know this, number one, God chose you. And number two, you have a living, breathing, personal hope in God. Thirdly, he says, you have an incorruptible inheritance. Now, paraphrase, you're an heir, you're not just to any fortune either. This one's kept in heaven for you, and it can never perish, spoil, or fade. Well, you know, Nero's taking their land and seizing their holdings and all of that. So inheritance is a, is a key idea here, and it's really prefigured in the Old Testament of what it means for us to be co-heirs with Christ as Abraham, the father of faith, is an heir, and God gave him Canaan, gave him the land of Canaan. And he said, in 400 years, your people will come here and you will possess this promised land. We've been talking about that Wednesday nights in Joshua. Well, with inc- ancestral land, they belonged somewhere. They had a sense of security. They had a sense that this is a place for us and, and our offspring. The Jewish dream was Micah 4:4 4, 4. Every man will sit under his own vine under his own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. If you belonged to Naphtali's family you would be uh, by the sea of Galilee. You knew you had an inheritance if you belonged to Manasseh's tribe, the border of the ter- Mediterranean, or Judah, you had Jerusalem. That was your place, your inheritance. The problem was that you could lose that inheritance. So Peter's putting a spin on this inheritance. He's saying, listen up. You've got an incorruptible inheritance. You could lose the first kind, the Old Testament one. You could lose it personally. You remember 1 Kings 21? Wicked King Ahab eyed a piece of property. He wanted to put a little garden on problem is it belonged to a guy named Naboth. So he calls Naboth into the palace. He says, Naboth, I so love that little corner lot of yours. It would make such a pretty garden for me. I would like to have it. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. And here's what Naboth says about his inheritance. He says, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. So he goes home and throws a pity party. He goes home. He's the king, wicked King Ahab. Goes home to his wonderful wife, Queen Jezebel. (laughs) And she says, why so glum? You're not eating your vegetables. And he says, I'm not eating a thing tonight because I'm so distressed. She goes, what's the matter? And he says, that Naboth, he won't give me his garden. He says it's his inheritance. And she says, please, I'll get you that inheritance. And so he gets all perky, and he has his dessert, and he's all happy, because <laughs> he knows Queen Jezebel can get what Queen Jezebel wants. So Queen Jezebel does hires some thugs, slanders him, says he's blasphemed. And at a meeting, they go and get him. And they drag Naboth out into the courtyard and stone him to death. And she goes in with a smile. Get up. Go get that man's inheritance because it's yours now. You see, that's the problem. With a former kind of inheritance, it can be stolen. It can be ripped out of your hands. A sibling who's jealous can hire a lawyer. And before you know it, you're out of the will. Amen? Yeah. I thought so. <laughs> it happens. Uh, I would like to add that queen and king, they didn't live very long afterwards to enjoy that inheritance <laughs> that they stole. And in a very wrathful vengeful way God dealt with them but the point here is also Israel Israel didn't get to enjoy their land they still can't enjoy it they're still trying to get the Gaza was given to them you can read about it it falls right in where God says this is yours the West Bank is theirs they still don't have it it's been taken from them still in 700 BC, the Assyrians came in and took the northern ten tribes away from your inheritance. You can't have it anymore. They took ten tribes out. 200 years later, the Babylonians came in and took the southern two tribes away to Babylon. Done. They stole it away. Where's your inheritance? Peter says, it doesn't work that way when you're in Christ. They can't do that to you. It's impossible. He says, number one, it cannot perish. It cannot spoil. It cannot fade. The words rhyme in Greek. Cannot perish. You know, it means incapable of decay. It means never ending, lasting forever, not subject to death. What God has for you can't be killed. It cannot die. No more fear of dying, no more aging, thank God. And no more diseases, no more accidents. The thing that God has for us is impervious to death and ending. The second word he says, it cannot spoil. Uh, It's true that um, metals won't rust and food won't rot once we get there. That whole order of decay and curse is lifted, and that never happens again. But the word cannot spoil your inheritance means it cannot be morally defiled. Sin will not ruin this. Not even sin or evil can take it away. In the new kingdom, it says nothing impure will ever enter there nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. He says, there won't be somebody drunk ruining the party. There won't be somebody who hurts another person. This is what God's doing in you is going to be kept pure. You're going to be changed. You won't have those kinds of thoughts or desires because your body will be changed and Christ will be first and foremost on your heart and in your life, he will have glorified you. That means you will be incapable of sinning because you will have a body and a life like his and he is incapable of such. You will be partakers of the divine nature as we are already in a way that doesn't make us God but makes us able to escape corruption. The third word he uses, he says you ca- it cannot fade away. It cannot fade. In other words, the wow factor of heaven, and Christ's work of redemption in our hearts, the wow factor will never, ever subside. You will never get bored in heaven. You will never be thinking of the drudgery ahead. You know, here on earth, things can get pretty dull. You know, Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is utterly meaningless. The wind blows to the south, then to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. It goes on and on. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of fill of its hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long time ago. It was here before our time those things will never happen, cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade. It's kind of like Jesus said, you guys need to stop investing so much in the here and now where it's so vulnerable to loss. Thieves can steal it away from you. It can fade away. It can spoil and perish, but not so with investing in the kingdom of God. Here's a quote before we move on. The inheritance of the new covenant Christian is now shown by Peter to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. That land was not kept for them by the power of God, but it was taken from them in exile even while they were in the land. The produce rewards rewards decayed, and its glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness was repeatedly defiled by sin, None of this is possible with their new home in Christ's kingdom into which they have born been born again. So, number four, inexpressible joy. Now, this is a joy that transcends our present circumstances. It's perfectly compatible with painful difficulties, as is often the theme of the New Testament. Since our inheritance and the work that God is doing in your heart and life can't be touched by outward circumstances, so too our joy. Our Christian joy is independent of what's going on at the time. The word happy, which doesn't appear in the Bible at all, <laughs> the word happy comes from the word hap, from chance or luck. So the word in English, the secular word to be happy, is directly tied... To your circumstance, if your circumstance is good and pleasing and convenient to you, you say, I am happen to be happy because this is going on in my life. But joy, Christian joy, Christian joy, the night before Jesus went to the cross, the Christian joy Jesus talks about for the joy set before him, down deep, Nobody runs around going, I'm so happy. I'm in so much pain. Nobody's asking you to do that. He's just saying, in the midst of painful trial, you can have joy because you know God is with you and will use this for your advantage. What was going on? They had a lot of difficulties. Missionaries arrived in those provinces, preached the gospel. They believed, and their lives changed, number one. They stopped worshipping various gods of the Roman Empire. Uh, they, instead, they're worshipping Jesus. They stopped worshipping the city gods and the union guild guard gods and the family gods. So they, as a result, they were considered, first of all, unpatriotic. It was like when you didn't acknowledge uh, Caesar as Lord, it was like not saluting the flag. What's wrong with you? You're not patriotic. You don't love our country. You don't love our leader. Uh, So they were considered unpatriotic and disloyal. You know, the civic ceremonies often invoked uh, pagan practices. So they would opt out and they would say, you're disloyal. Uh, They were considered unprofessional. The trade unions took place in um, temples and they had meetings. And they offered their incense to the local gods and goddesses uh, that were responsible for bringing them uh, uh, profit. And so when the, the Christians who get saved, they'd say, hey, you know what? God, the living God, gives us profit. And so they said, you know what? You, you are unprofessional. And then they were called haters of their families because every family had household shrines and gods, and goddesses. And they would pray to their ancestors. And then the Christian would say, you know what, I don't pray to to grandma, I pray to God. I pray to God. I don't pray to this thing, and I'm not going to offer anything on it, because it's offering something to demons. And so they said, you hate us. You hate grandma. And so on every layer... They are unpatriotic, they are disloyal, they're unprofessional at work, and they are haters of families. So Nero said of all Christians, they are, quote, history books, haters of mankind. They hate everything about us. They don't fit in. Let's persecute them. And he blamed this terrible fire on the haters of mankind, the Christians, and all hell broke loose. And Peter had to keep saying things like, you can still have joy. You can still have joy because he says, here's the paraphrase. All of this about salvation is thrilling and fills you with this great joy, even though you may, for a little time, have to go through some painful ordeals. These things God may allow to refine your faith. Fire tests gold, affliction tests men, and you'll come through it And prove that you're the real deal. And when Jesus appears, you will receive honor, praise, and glory. Wow. So these difficulties had eternal purposes. Listen to me. Whatever thing that is difficult for you right now, that God has allowed, and you are a Christian who submitted to his will, and you're not being disciplined, even if you are through it, God has something good in it. James says, number one, it'll complete your faith. He says, you can count this all trouble that you fall into as joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance has to have its full work in you that you might be complete and mature, whole, lacking nothing. So he's saying, number one, you can have joy in your trouble because God's at work at you to strengthen your faith. Then it's like a conspiracy. Then Paul in Romans chapter five, a good conspiracy because they're saying, look, trouble isn't your enemy. It's the way you handle your trouble because God has a way of using trouble as his tool to refine you, to prove you, to help you. So Romans chapter five It says suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So James says it's about strengthening your faith. Paul says it's about deepening your character. And then here, what I love is this accumulating future reward. Now, he's trying to say, listen, folks, when you suffer for being a Christian, God Almighty is taking note, and you will hear about it. On that great day. And, and then Paul says it this way. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Here's how Paul endured all of that trouble. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 11. What was it? Five times he was beat with rods. With three times with rods. I think five times he was flogged. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he had so many problems. And he's the one who says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal... What, what, he has a heavenly perspective. He's saying, can you stop and think about eternity? You have a very short time to suffer. There will never be suffering again, ever And ever and ever, ever, this is the only time you get to express your faith in difficulty. You will never get it again after this life. It will be forever done. So he's saying you have a small little window of opportunity to achieve in eternity an eternal, lasting forever weight of glory by the rightly bearing the trials that God has given you today it's a short time it's only if need be but god is allowing something to refine your character to test to prove you and to 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 accumulate future reward for you so he says glory honor and praise for the christian who goes singing as they did in medieval times they sang on the way to be burned at the stake as heretics hundreds of thousands of us ripped out of their homes, and they went singing. He says, when I see you, when I see you, can you imagine the Lord Jesus looking into your eyes, which he will, and he will place a crown of reward upon your head. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, is going to reward you for everything that you've done faithfully for him. The Bible tells us, I I mean, it's one thing to imagine Jesus washing my dirty feet as he did the disciples. Peter said, boy, this is just a little much. Uh, I'm having some trouble here. You will never wash my feet. But he worked through that one. (laughs) Wait until Jesus says, I got something for you, kid. Let's talk about that time at work when you stood up for me. Remember what you said there? You had just said such courage. I heard that. I was so pleased. I, I want to talk to you about that. I want to reward you for this and that and the other thing. And then he he, he puts something, a gold uh, medallion around your neck. As you bend before the living God. Glory, honor, and praise is waiting for those he says. Now, glory, honor, and praise belongs to God alone. But apparently, he's he, he's willing to spread that around a little bit. Jesus said this way, a, a cup of cold water in my name will merit you an award, a reward on that day. He says, just think of it that way. In other words, every little word of encouragement you did for somebody who's my disciple, well, that's a cup of cold water. It's like uh, some little encouragement. He says, Even that, you will not lose your reward. You will hear about that in heaven. Can you imagine if a cup of cold water brings a reward to those who are denying themselves every day over a besetting sin that you bear a cross about? When you close your mouth, when you are insulted instead of returning, you bless, you bite your tongue, You prefer others. You go the second mile. You turn the other cheek. Jesus says, cha-ching, cha-ching, (laughs) cha-ching. You know the story that I love to brag about my kids. Let me brag about Zachary when he was in the fourth grade. I've told this story before. He'd bring his little kid's Bible to school there, Sonoma Mountain, there in Petaluma. And on recess time, the kids were teasing him a lot. And he came home, he was a little bit bummed, and he told us the story. He said, Dad, I had a hard time today. They call me Bible Boy. They were dancing around me. I was reading my Bible, and my fourth grader is reading his Bible, and they're dancing around him, chanting Bible Boy, Bible Boy, Bible Boy, and they won't let me play with them. They just call me Bible Boy. And I said, Zach... That is so sad. Are you okay? I mean, I'm going to go and talk to somebody at the school for you. And he goes, Dad, that's okay. He goes, more crowns, more crowns, more crowns. He goes, Dad, you stay home. Fourth grade, already thinking what you're doing to me today is going to achieve for me an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the trouble of this little recess debacle. (laughs) Lastly, chosen by God, living hope, incorruptible inheritance, inexpressible joy, and then lastly, this very intriguing last little thought here, an unbelievable honor. Here's the paraphrase. I hope you catch it. He says... Now, you have this joy because you're reaching your goal. You're being saved. This salvation of yours was what the prophets were writing about. They were mesmerized about this mystery, this grace that God was going to bring. And they were straining to understand what it was they were writing about themselves. They knew that the Messiah would suffer, and they knew about the glory to come. But in between, it was so mysterious. The church... But God revealed to them that they were actually writing about you and what you would experience in the church. Not them. Even angels are marveling at what God is doing in your life. So lastly, he just says, do you know, do you have any idea how privileged you are? You may be on the bottom of the totem pole in the Roman Empire or here in the 21st century in Sonoma County (laughs) as a Christian because of your faith. But he says, do you realize how privileged you are? He's saying you are living at the consummation of everything God had planned through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says, do you know how uh, fortunate you are Do you know how blessed you are? He's saying the Old Testament prophets were like, what are you trying to say here? We don't get it. We get the sufferings of Messiah and we get the glories to come, the second coming, two mountaintop peaks, but we don't get the middle part. The whole thing is about us and the Lord The church, the mystery of the ages. And he's saying, do you get how privileged and honored? The prophets of old, they're scratching their heads. They're like, uh, Abraham, take your only son, the son that you love, the son of promise, the miracle son, and bring him up to Mount Calvary. Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary are the same mounts. Bring him up to Mount Calvary, and offer him. And he carries his own wood up to be offered. And right at the end, he takes the knife, the father, to slay the only son, the miracle son. The son through all the promises to the Jewish people are resting in Isaac. And he's about to slay the only son, the father. And the, he stops him and says, listen, Abraham, no, it's a dress rehearsal. <laughs> this is a living parable. And, and Moses and anybody who read that is, what is God trying to say there? You know, all through the writings there, the exodus, the rock you strike, is going to bleed this water. And it's going to be living water to save you. This bread from heaven is going to fall. And it's going to give you life. Uh, this waters are going to part, this baptism, which is going to, to be a part of the salvation experience. This serpent <laughs> lifted up on a pole in the shape of a cross. One look at it will cure you from the venomous, poisonous bite. They're all like, "What? what are you trying to say? We kind of get it, but it's kind of foggy. And Peter says he was talking about what's going on in you. First Corinthians chapter 10 says, These things happened to them and written down for you upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You remember when Jesus said, Hey, John the Baptist, they had just martyred him. Among men in the Old Testament, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, of all the Old Testament, John made it all the way up. And he's not saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John is saying he's here. Therefore, John is greater than anybody else in the Old Testament. Then he says, but pick one of you who lives after the cross. Just one in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Why? Because he's not saying he's here, he's here. He's in me. And he's changing the world through us. And now the least in the kingdom of God is greater than everybody in the Old Testament. He says, Do you realize what an unbelievable honor? It is God who picked you in his time to live in this time and in this place. He could have picked you and put you anywhere, but he let you live in a time where you could meet the living God through the power of his Holy Spirit and experience something, the whole Old Testament was straining forward and saying, we live partially. We are incomplete. We don't get it. But you guys get it. There's nothing left after us. There is nothing left for Jesus to have done but come back and judge the world and rule and reign forever. But what, what, what I'm saying in this is that when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Do you get that? He was done with his work. God came as a baby and the angels are longing to look into this. The word means to peer with marveling and great scrutinizing. It's the same word that when Mary and Peter came to the tomb and they're going through the, the um, grave clothes of our Lord, peering and stooping over and trying to figure it out and mis- mystified angels are looking at you they, and they're mystified at what God is doing. He says, Peter said, do you get that? Do you get the whole Old Testament is looking at you and going, wow, just to have been them. That's what it was all about. The giving of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of a life. The angels don't know what it's like to have fallen. The angels don't have two natures warring together inside of them. They don't know what it is to be redeemed. And they look at Saul, the apostle, one day and the next day, boom, they see him as Paul the Apostle and the angels are like, whoa, get a hold of this. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Come on, you guys. Stop with your whining. You are privileged. You are the you are the crown in God's redemptive history. Live like it. Have that confidence. Five sentences left, and you're going to help me. You to repeat after me, because I want you to arm yourself with the truth. Number one, repeat after me. I've been chosen by God. I've been chosen by God. I, have a hope. I have a living hope. I have an inheritance that's eternal. I have, an inheritance that's eternal. I have inexpressible joy. I've been given an unbelievable honor. honor. Let's pray. I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of these pillars of truth that guide us and guard us and inspire us and motivate us to, to stay on course. No matter what comes, you said the gates of hell, the power of death and hell cannot come against you and you in us. For greater are you who is in us than he that is in the world. We give you glory and honor and praise. And we acknowledge that the crown you do place on our head will go straight to your feet because we owe all our praise to you. And there's no way we could even be faithful Through these trials, without the reliance on the power that you supply. God, you're good to us and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. It's a great deal. All of that is true. But it's not for everybody. It's only for those who believe, who repent of their sins humble themselves and say, you're the Lord, I'm not. Come in, take control, forgive me. I've been a rebel. I bow my heart before you. And I believe that Jesus, you came. You are God in the flesh. You died for me. The second the moment you do that, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then the five things I made you repeat, then they really will be yours. But they don't just get handed out to anybody. You must belong to Him. And so I'm gonna give you that opportunity. If you've never, and you know, people around you may think that you already are, but you know in your heart. Are you living a bowed-knee life to the Lord? Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? If not, we're gonna bow our heads now, close our eyes. There's pastors over in the overflow room as well, so we're watching out for you. If you'd like this to be true about you, then you just have to open your heart and, and say what we call a sinner's prayer, and I help you by leading you in that prayer. So if you'd like to pray that prayer to start your Christian life this morning, you just lift your hand up nice and high and say, I'd like to become a Christian this morning. I'd like to turn my life over to the Lord. Amen. There's a hand waving in the back. And any others like to just join? Thank you. Amen. Another hand that is going to make it official. Somebody I I spoke with this morning, a first-time visitor, checking out a church. Never been to church, really. Doesn't go to church now, but just had the opportunity to meet her. And her hand is waving up nice and high. So, Father, um, before we pray, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Let's repeat after me this prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, I'm a sinner. sinner. I've been running from you you. for a long time. time. Today I stop. stop. By faith I open my heart to to the living God. I resist you no more. Come into my heart, give me new life, and make these five things true of my life today. I repent of my sins. I'm your child now. Fill me with your spirit and give you my heart and life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Father, we pray for the rest of us, Lord, have been touched, no doubt, by this message of encouragement, God. None of us want to be led into temptation or to persecution, Father, but we willfully endure whatever it is you've called us to, for whatever season you've called us to bear that, knowing this, Lord, that we've been chosen by you, and we have a living hope and an inheritance that can never die and an expressible joy in our hearts and unbelievable honor to be saved by God, to live with God forever and ever. And the promises of God, alive. Thank you, God. We thank you for the fellowship time to come. We pray that you bless our food and our time together. We're so grateful, God, for All that you've done with this little church started just as a little church. We're just so grateful, God. Thank you. All praise and glory and honor to you, Lord, for all that you've done. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. The two of you who raised your hand, we have Bibles, and we want to pray with you. We're all excited. We're already getting loved up back there. God bless you. There's prayer at the crosses as well in both rooms.